I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. For most of us, being by or in water is uniquely seductive, from observing the way the water moves and shimmers to complete awe and tranquility. You feel part of something that is so vast. And thinking about just floating in the ocean this morning, I went for a surf right at first light. And that pink light is shelling the water and it's glass and you see animals swimming around and you are this tiny speck in the ocean. But first, the allure of a brisk dip in the sea. There's nothing else like it. There's nothing on earth like the feeling of of that water, that freezing cold water biting at your skin, but holding it at the same time. Our timeless draw to the water's edge and taking a plunge. This week, the history, mythology, and joy of swimming with Catherine May and Bonnie Tsui. That's coming up on Life Examined on KCRW. Whether it's splashing in puddles, watching the rain, a wild ocean, or just sitting by the still of a lake, water has always entranced us. It's also essential for life and covers half of the Earth's surface. And in the form of seas, lakes, rivers, and streams is not only a source of food and exploration, but of joy and wonder, a magical and unique entity we can sit beside, float on top of, and for some, like me, dive into and swim about. But what is it about being totally immersed and surrounded by water that makes it so transformative? Why are more and more people discovering that immersing yourself in nature shouldn't be restricted to the time of year or even by temperature? As British author Catherine May sees it, there's an underappreciated beauty surrounding the cold and dark winter months. And when it comes to water, a dip in a frigid sea is, in her words, quote, like nothing else on earth. Catherine May is a writer and author of Wintering and also Enchantment. Catherine May, welcome back to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Oh, I always love talking to you. Thank you for having me. We are in in the dark, cold season, which, of course, is the season that you love and have written so beautifully about. And And I wanted to just check in with you as, as to where you are right now in this season and perhaps what's been happening in your life and the ideas that you've been thinking about as uh, as we kind of explore this territory together. Yeah, I think as the years go on, the more I've been talking about wintering all year round, I really begin to engage with the changes that take place at this time of year. And here in the UK, it is so dark here at the moment. I wake up in absolute blackness. And by mid-afternoon, I'm back into that blackness again. And I begin to think about what that darkness means And I think as time goes on, I'm planning that midwinter period more and more intently, that time when I'll be celebrating the return of the light or or even like I feel like I'm urging it back towards me at this stage. It it feels endless right now. It's interesting, this idea of of planning for the darkness, because (laughs) most of us, I think, just mourn the darkness. You know, the the conversations I have with friends like, oh, my God, I can't believe we're here. It's it's freezing and dark. But I, I love the idea that maybe it's it's something that we look at with with a with a bit of seriousness and a bit of forethought, just in the way that you're describing it. Yeah, I mean, I think traditionally we would have seen that very, very intense midwinter period that time when the sun has reached its southernmost point and kind of appears to stay still in the sky for 10 12 days before it starts to move back again I think we'd have seen that as a very particular spiritual time actually a time for celebration which is a spiritual act in itself but also for contemplation for reflection and I think it would have been a time when our past societies lit a series of fires to bring the light much closer to us during that time. And so I've become such a fan of that particular moment. It's no longer just about Christmas for me, which was always one day that felt a little bit overblown and a bit exhausting. But instead, that broader period when I'm being invited into this complete stillness at the very end of the year before it all begins again. I think it's an incredibly beautiful time and I, I think we often miss it in the the big rush and commercial nature of our current Christmases and, and midwinters. Yeah. As we as we talk about this, I, I had this notion, you know, because I speak to a lot of creatives and writers and this this concept of creative constraint suddenly just came into my mind, which is the idea mm. that oftentimes 
to create, we actually need to kind of remove things around us. We need to remove possibilities or things that we yeah. could be doing. And the way you describe that, it, to me, it almost feels like there, there is beauty in the constraint of the season itself and in the place that we find ourselves. Uh, it's definitely true for me. And I, I think there is huge beauty in this moment when life is so pared back. I mean, it really is taken to the bare minimum of, of what we can do. We can't be outside for very long because it's so cold. It's often wet. It's often windy. Our freedom is restricted by the darkness. And I noticed that, you know, in my house, the there's an atmosphere to the place because of all of that dark. It, the, the light never gets in, it seems, at the moment. And I, my little dark heart lifts during that period of time because I, I think it's such, there's such an atmosphere to this time of year. And it's okay for that atmosphere not to feel jolly or welcoming, that actually to play with those feelings of heaviness, desolation, doubt, worry, disappointment are, are really interesting, instructive emotions for us as humans. And they are absolutely consistent across all of us, even if we prefer to ignore them. Exactly. Well, I one thing I really want to get to is I think you and I share, I think you love winter more than me, let's say that. But we, <laughs> we, we, both, we both love water. And uh, one of the things I remember when we spoke to you last, and you've written, I think, very, very exquisitely about this as well, is no matter what the season or the place, you want to engage with the ocean. You want to put your body into it. And there's something you find incredibly magical about it. And I... I'd love if you could just kind of slow us down here and take us into your love of being in that ocean and 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 talk to us just about where that comes from. Yeah, I mean, who knows where it comes from, really? If you ask my family, they'll tell you that even as a tiny child, I was always having to be held back from running into any given body of water nearby. And I, there's something about it that really speaks to me. I, I think I love the soundscape of the ocean. I think I love that rhythmic crash of waves, the birds calling above it, the way that the, the sound that you make echoes off the sea. And, and it really is a very particular space that it takes you into. But it's such a guide to how the year's changing. I mean, the, the sea takes a while to catch up with the weather. It stays warmer for longer as the, the sun, the sun's energy kind of slowly releases from the sand and rocks that, that form the, the, the bed of the ocean. But by this time of year, the sea is now so cold <laughs> that it feels almost thick. You know, it's on the edge of freezing. It's down to three or four degrees centigrade. So so we have zero as our freezing point. And the texture of the water itself has changed. It's a real sensory delight. One of the things I've been really enjoying about the sea this year is noticing the birds. I've been walking to a slightly different part of the beach to normal and it's a bit quieter. And it's amazing this constantly changing picture that I that greets me every day the different calls of the birds the different uh sights there are to see and they're all interacting with the water the sea is so important to them it's their source of food and so yeah that's that's given me a whole other angle this year I love the way that my relationship with it can keep changing something you said just just 30 seconds ago really, really stuck out to me is so metaphorically rich. I mean, the idea that mm. the water takes a while to catch up to the weather, right? Here is this mm. incredible, this this mass of water, the ocean, right? And that it's, it's kind of moving at its own pace with its huge yeah. scale. And it takes a little bit of time to catch back up to the weather above it, which is, of course, more ephemeral and changing, but also on its own course. I'd love you to stay with that mm. metaphor for a while. I find it kind of very, very poignant. Yeah, it's almost like a little bit of summer carries into the water and takes us into winter. And by the time we reach the summer, there's still a little bit of winter left. It's this beautiful continuity between the seasons. And of course, the ocean is so unfathomably vast. I, I write about in uh, in Enchantment about the experience of standing by the sea 
and noticing how far above my head it would come when the tide's in and trying to think about, trying to quantify in my mind that massive volume of water that's moving around the planet every single day, constantly shifting. And I think it's beyond my reckoning, honestly. I think it's far beyond anything that I can actually hold inside my mind. And I I love it for that. I love how much bigger and faster than I am it is. And and that takes me right back to your comment about, you know, this this idea that the sea catches up. That's those seasons, the shifts that happen in those seasons are so enormous and we barely perceive them because we kind of reduce it down to like whether we need to put a coat on today or, you know, whether we can just go out in a T-shirt on one particular week. But actually, there's this huge system moving around us. And and if we stop to try and perceive it, try and interface with it, it, it really is humbling in the most literal way. It makes us feel absolutely tiny. And I love that you know, you mentioned the vastness, and I always think of stuff through the lens of psychology. And, and therefore, we, you know, we see lots of metaphors, whether it's in psychology or art, to, you know, the mm-hmm. ocean almost standing in as the unconscious or some part of, yeah. right, the human psyche that is somewhat unknowable, but is also, I think, we think of the unconscious as kind of a bit slower than the fluttering mind above it, right? A lot of meditators talk mm. about we're trying to return to a, a, an oceanic sense about us. And I don't know about you, I when you were talking about that, I kind of felt like sometimes it takes the psyche or the unconscious a little bit longer to catch up to what's happening around us, right? It, it, it moves slightly <laughs> at a different scale. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it's funny because the metaphor that I went to because there are so many fantastic metaphors, aren't there, with the sea, was uh, Freud talking about the oceanic feeling, which was the way that he described the human urge towards religion. He, you know, he didn't want to talk about it in that kind of Marxian sense of saying that it was an illusion and it was used as a source of oppression. And instead, he, he acknowledged that even though he didn't believe in God, he could see that there was this urge towards it that we had, and he called it oceanic, which I think is such a perfect way of describing that that rush of human spirituality, which we find so hard to come to terms with or to to really be able to examine. It, it's there, and it's this this instinct towards something bigger. That's like the that's the phrase that we repeat again and again. There's something bigger than I am but I don't understand it and I yeah it's funny how how we draw on the ocean when we want to talk about unknowability depth changeability maybe as well there's the sense of of moods coming across the ocean which is is one of the things I love about it I think yes very well said and and it's a place that I I know is not only something you 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 think about philosophically or artistically but you love to swim you love to actually get in there and I can you can you put some words to what that experience is is like for you particularly let's I got to remember you're you're in a very cold <laughs> ocean we're not kind of hanging out in Tahiti here together so I mean no. what's it like for you to kind of plunge into those depths those very cold depths well, I'm also, I live by what a lot of people would consider to be quite an unappealing stretch of the sea. I'm a, I'm in the English Channel, which is quite muddy and brown a lot of the time. <laughs> it's not the kind of romantic blue seas very often. I mean, sometimes it is. Um, I think that swimming for me, but particularly in the sea and particularly outdoors, takes me right into my body. And I'm one of those people who would live in their head all the time if they could. That's where I feel the most comfortable. And I ne- I know I need to be in my body and the sea takes me right there. I have to tend to my body's needs when I'm in the sea. I have to take care of myself. I have to try not to drown. Obviously, that's a very practical consideration. But also, I have to notice when I get too cold so that I can get out. And there's also, in addition to that kind of basic self-care, which it's so easy to not do, there's also the sense that the sea gives my skin so much pleasure. It really, I don't know, I find it just an amazing feeling to have something touching the whole of my body at once and to have that entire sensory landscape kind of unfolding around me. 
it it feels like a very complete experience in an age when there are so many things competing noisily for my attention. This is a chosen, very complete, very all-encompassing experience. And yeah, I I love just going back in there as much as I can. Mm. And I, I'd imagine that the, the temperature of that ocean and the wind and, you know, all of that is is a bit more enlivening. And I think you joked about this once that you're less interested in like the nice warm Mediterranean sea, <laughs> right? Yeah. But but what you're yeah. describing is something that I think like literally and metaphorically kind of takes your breath away when you get into it. Yeah, very literally, actually. I mean, I, I've always uh, sort of had to be very careful to draw a breath in before I go in the sea at winter because Otherwise, it sucks the breath away from me. And if I've got no breath in my lungs in the first place, I'm in trouble. Yeah, I I feel very uninterested in calm, warm seas. And in fact, I find them almost a bit creepy when I get into them now. They feel like the wrong temperature. <laughs> I I love the, the blast of a, of a cold sea. And I love swimming in Devon and Cornwall in the summer where the sea is much colder than it is near me, uh, even all through the summer. Um, and and here in the winter is is definitely when I start to really really crave it because it there's nothing else like it there's nothing on earth like the feeling of that of that water that freezing cold water biting at your skin but holding it at the same time yeah I'm an addict I'm afraid yeah yeah what about uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> the what about uh, ver- that versus let's say going to a pool is that less interesting to you I mean just the experience of swimming yeah I don't love pools I quite like outdoor pools um I, it's it's the indoor pools that I don't like because they're too warm and too noisy and there's too many people in them there's always some space you can find in the sea um, but I do, I have got a local outdoor pool that that's beginning to open all through the winter. So I'm delighted by that. I am extending my experience because we've had some problems with pollution in our sea locally this year. So we've all had to change our relationship with it slightly and, and watch the forecast very carefully to make sure that there, nothing unpleasant has been released into it. Um, and that's that's thrown me into a bit of a crisis, honestly, because I I desperate to carry on swimming, but I have to take another form of care of my body, like it's another thing to monitor. So yes, I am embracing the swimming pool now, reluctantly, <laughs> slightly grumpily. Um, you know, they're wonderful places, and and obviously not everyone can get into the sea so I I do have a lot of respect for swimming pools but for me natural bodies of water will always be the the stuff that calls me well you said something else that I, I really loved as well and I think this to me is very specific to the ocean um, which is that I think when you're in that kind of really cold dense salty water it mm. it, it goes home with you right you you get oh, home yeah. and and you haven't quite left it yet and maybe you can shower, but even then, it still feels like somehow part of that 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 brininess has found its way into you. Would, would you agree that there's the, there's a lingering sense to that? Oh, absolutely. I love the way that when you get out of the cold sea, it feels like the blood in your veins is sparkling almost. There's a there's a sense that something inside you has cooled down, and and it it tingles. It's it's really beautiful. And I've often found that on a day when I've swum in the sea, when I get into bed at night and close my eyes, I still feel the waves in me. Like I can feel that kind of rise and fall. I, it's beautiful. I feel I do feel a huge pull. I think I'm a tidal human being and I, I think I'm responding to the moon like the, the tides are sometimes. I, I feel it pulling on my body. Mm. Well, and I, I think it's also important to mention where, where you live, the tides themselves are a lot more extreme than we see like yeah. on the Pacific or the Atlantic. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. I remember seeing photos of some of those beaches. I mean, it's like hundreds of feet coming in and out. It, it, is that right? I mean, it's a big, it's, it's a really a big nuisance, swing. Yeah. yeah. A yeah, nuisance. A okay. Nuisance. <laughs> I thought it just yeah, kind of I mean, sounded can... interesting. So. <laughs> well, all right. I love walking on the intertidal zone when the, when the sea's gone out. There's always loads of interesting things to find there. But if you want to swim, you have to plan your swim really carefully because if I'm an hour off the high tide, then there's about a foot of water that I can swim in. The tide's gone out so far. 
So, yeah, we, we have a really huge tidal range here in Kent. And when the when the sea's out in Whitstable, you, you really can't see it. It's, it's very, very far away. And then it washes right up nearly into the town. So it's it's a it's a vast movement all the time. Something's always going on. Mm. And I, I guess, I you know, any other thoughts for you, as you mentioned, just your love recently of being in quieter parts of the beach or with the birds or kind of, you know, the other aspect, which is just walking along that big body of water as well. Yeah, I always say that I like to walk by the sea because I can't get lost. I, I'm renowned for getting lost. And so if I always keep the sea to my left or my right, I'm I'm normally kind of okay. <laughs> But yeah, I think there's something about coastal walks as well. You know, you you do get that blast of wind, which I know a lot of people hate, but it's another unexpected thing that I really enjoy. I think when you've walked by the coast, you know it. You come home and your hair's tangled, your cheeks are bright red. You've been kind of exfoliated by the sand that's blowing at you. And there's, again, it's another very absolute experience. The, the sea is so controlling. It takes over you. You have to submit to it in lots of ways. And of course, one of the things about our coastal landscapes is they're so ever-changing. You know, you, you have the kind of rocky shores. We have a lot of chalk cliffs around here, which are so beautiful, particularly in the sun. They they really glow. And then my least favourite is sand, which I know is, is everyone else's dream. But um, I would, if I never had to go on another sandy beach again, I'd be very happy. I think. Really? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a very frustrating substance, sand. <laughs> You'd rather kind of kind of trundle along some slippery rocks or, or something like yep. that? Love a rock. Yeah. <laughs> I, like a, I like a really craggy landscape. But yeah, sand to me just gets in your food. I'm always trying. I really hate that about it. And I, I don't enjoy the texture, but I'll take it if it's, you know, if that's all I've got. I'm, I'm not fussy. Yeah. Well, are there, <laughs> are, are there any other just stories in your mind about, about water or swimming that come to mind, whether it's in the ocean or somewhere else or something that I haven't asked you about it that I feel like is important for you to share? Oh, I'd love to talk about the community of swimmers because I think that's something that's really grown up over the last few years. And there's a there's a piece in my book, Enchantment, where I write about going to Devon to see my friend Jenny, who used to live in Whitstable and she's moved away. And I went and swam with her group of swimmers, all of them older women, um, at a place called Heartland Quay which is that beautiful craggy landscape. It has the most incredible granite rock kind of poking out of the the seabed like, like bone. And she took me out to swim between these two rocks where uh, the sea kind of calms for a moment. So we swam right across the bay and then cradled between these two rocks. We was We were kind of rocked very gently. Um, and all of the swimmers gathered there and just kind of bobbed up and down for a while. And then we all swam back again. And it was it was that experience of being held very gently by a sea that was otherwise quite wild, which was lovely. But it was also the character of that experience of doing it with another group of people being brave and courageous and testing themselves and, and just having a great time. And I I don't think we talk enough about the community that swimmers experience. There's something very special about that. Mm. And they seem to be all over, in, but particularly like in very cold places, like up in San Francisco, there's these very devoted swim clubs or up and down coastal California. But it, 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 there's like this kind of tribal aspect to these people that love being out there together, isn't there? Yeah, and I think from the outside, it looks really annoying when we're all walking through town in our in our dry robes. <laughs> I think that. I think that can make us look like a bit like a cult. Um, but I, as with all things, you know, once you try it, your your attitude quite often changes. And I, I fantasize about being a member of one of the polar bear clubs that exist in Denmark and Norway, where they have a clubhouse for swimmers to be in, normally with a sauna and some showers. Um, and and people gather there and are able to to join up with each other after their swim as well. I think I would love to see more of those beginning to open up. And I it wouldn't surprise me if they don't happen over the next few years in, in both of our countries, because I think once these groups of swimmers are getting going, we're experiencing that need to to 
to mass together in our very cultish way. <laughs> yes. Well, as always, it's, it's so wonderful to be joined by Catherine May, the author of Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times, and most recently, Enchantment, Awakening Wonder in an Anxious Age. Thank you so much for, for popping in here with us and keeping this conversation alive between the two of us. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. You can ask me about the sea for as long as you like, whenever you like. You're listening to Life Examined right here on KCRW. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. The therapeutic and meditative benefits of swimming and immersing yourself in water are a familiar experience for Bonnie Tsui. She's an avid swimmer and surfer in Northern California and the author of Why We Swim. In this book, she explores the history of swimming and examines our many watery connections. Her own parents, for example, met in a swimming pool, and part of her daily ritual often includes surfing at sunrise. So what do we know about our ancient connection to water? And why did swimming and access to the waterfront become so associated with privilege and wealth? Bonnie Tsui, welcome to Life Examined. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. So I, I want to go back as far as we can and as far back as your research goes into some of the first, I, I don't know, historical records we have of people swimming, being in the water, doing this thing that we maybe take for granted. But I take it that like, you know, it was part of, I would imagine, kind of the human experience going back hundreds, if not thousands of years. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. Um, when I first started um, really thinking about writing a book about swimming, um, you know, of course, you we've all wondered, when did humans first start swimming? And of course, it's a, a question that's impossible to answer. But there's there is so much interesting evidence when you start poking around under rocks and mm -hmm. just asking people of all, you know, disciplines, you know, what their opinion or what their thoughts on the matter is. And, and um, I, you know, and, and, if, and one of the things that I love about water, and I've thought about this a lot is, you know, an interesting thing about a wake is that it disappears, right? You leave you it's temporary and so you kind of have to go at it at an, at an oblique angle mm. <laughs> and i actually really you know i loved um once i kind of got over the the fact that i was never going to really find the answer it was really fun to be imaginative about it and you know one of the the great um you know records of, of, of human swimming is of course the cave of swimmers um you know in the middle of the desert um, mm. the sahara and it's just such an interesting you know there people have speculated you know are these really swimmers or is are, are these cave drawings really of people swimming or is it of you know maybe it's um some kind of religious uh you know but really you look at these these figures and they are brushstroking up the walls of a cave you know and where are and, these from can you give us just a little background on this on this cave well it's um it was first discovered by this hungarian explorer um lazo hmm. amasi and he and you know he's he's a character in the english patient and it was so funny to it you know you really follow these lovely um uh, you know, you dive down these rabbit holes after these things and you think, oh, it touches everything. It touches literature and adventure mm. and, and, and um, archaeology. And so these, you know, it was discovered um, in these caves. And, and he speculated at the time, you know, that these swimmers were inspired by swimmers, real life swimmers who were swimming nearby, you know, in, in, in lakes nearby. And of course, um, he was, um, at the time, people thought he was crazy to think about climate change, you know, to think about that in a desert. You mm -hmm. know, I love that, you know, right now these swimmers are swimming up the walls of a cave in the middle of the yeah, desert. Yeah, which but, desert? What, like, what country was it? 
It was in the Sahara. It's in the it's on the okay. border um, with Libya, I believe. Oh, interesting. So Gilf really, in kind of a desolate place, I'd imagine. Yeah. yeah, but you know, and and now we know, of course, and scientists know, like that, um, that. It was from a time when the Sahara was green, and in this period called the Green mm. Sahara, really there were lake beds, um, and and so I kind of from that story I fell into this other wonderful story um, about the uh, paleontologist Paul Sereno who. You know, in the early 2000s, he stumbled upon um, this really uh, incredible uh, Stone Age cemetery, um, like these piles of midden, these middens of clamshells and um, giant lake bed, um, this this uh, basically evidence of this, um, these paleo lakes that kind of came and went and these and these peoples who lived along the shores because mm. they were stable mm. over many thousands of years and that you know in the middle of these lake beds that there were um spears and uh um arrowhead you know arrowheads and um and and that and and all this evidence of like nile perch you know which is like a giant fish that still exists today but that 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 people were living and fishing along the edges of this paleo lake system um you know right or you know you could imagine it then being that these are people who were swimming um you know in the middle of what we know now as a desert uh at, at, at you know sometime many thousands of years ago and so mm -hmm. one of the things that he told one of the stories he told me was about um a story about swimming and drowning and you know it was this incredible burial of this mother and two children and and they speculated that these people drowned um, and then were buried ceremonially um, and it was really one of the most spectacular finds of this site this stone mm. age cemetery and um, you know that you know we were talking about how you know when did the first human swim and and to me these stories that I that kind of that kind of came to me as I was um, researching this book helped me to then connect, you know, because we are, you know, as as a species, we tell ourselves stories to understand and also to connect and also to, um, you know, make a meaning of the things that we do. And one of those things that we've done for so long is swim and we're not born knowing instinctively how to do it um, like most terrestrial mammals are. and mm. So why do we keep teaching ourselves how to do it? Why do we pass on these uh, these these stores of knowledge and these stories to go with the skills? Um, and um, to me, it is both useful skill, but also magic. You know, it is it is existing and 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 holding yourself and suspending yourself in a medium that really we kind of don't have any business being in, but we figured out how to survive it, and also yeah. you know beyond that to 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 have joy in it. And I mean, what do you think that kind of says in a sense about the human relationship to water? As I said, I mean, it's almost seems, it seems metaphoric to me or symbolic. It, it definitely churns oh, us. Sure. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think obviously we need water to live. Um, yeah. But I think, um, you know, we, you know, we are wired to want to be near it. Right. So we, we think about all of the sort of late, you know, latest science about, how our brains um, are attracted to uh, the natural world, right? We're attracted to trees and fo and forests and right. greenery, and also to bodies of water. I mean, these are. It's. I always think about how in you know all those studies about uh, hospital rooms where even you know a window, right? It changes the outcome and really improves the outcome of a patient's health. That's right. But also pictures of the ocean or pictures of a forest that also. Um, you know, it really boosts the, um, it boosts our health. And I think because we, you know, our bodies know on some level, you know, we are wired to respond to these certain set points in the environment and, um, you know, kind of dig a little deeper and, and go into uh, the question of awe, you know, I, I think, mm -hmm. Awe is a is a um, you know a state of being <laughs> that we that has sort of been um, really uh, explored a lot and talked about and of 
for in recent and recent times um in, in you know sort of in our modern world what does it serve us but also of course it's been something that philosophers have been you know debating and talking about for a long time and um i think what's so interesting about all these days is that we we tend to be We had we tend to have like a, a reaction to it in a way that's like really beneficial to us. Right. And so if we're in the outdoor world, you know, and immersed in water um, or immersed in some natural environment, we where we feel, you know, that one of the key things about awe is that you're you feel part of something that is that is so vast, right? Mm. And I, I'm thinking about just being floating in the ocean this morning. I went for a surf right at first light and you know that pink you know light is like shelling the water and it's glass and you see animals swimming around and you are this tiny speck in the ocean and that can be terrifying i mean that's the edge of what awe is but you also feel incredibly connected to this larger sense of the world and existence that, um, you know, when we what we take away from that as humans is that we want to be, you know, we feel more time rich, we feel less impatient, we feel that we want to help others, we actually are more altruistic when we get to experience this. And and isn't this like a, a medicine we keep we want to keep taking over and over again? I mean, yeah. it is something that really fills us up. Oh, it's one of my favorite topics, and 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 I would love to point our listeners to the work of Dacker Keltner, who's up in the yeah. Bay Area as well, who's been on the show multiple times, and those were some of my favorite conversations. So I think you and he and all of us are speaking this very similar language about the power of awe and to how it connects us to this. I just this world. um, so I just finished a new book about muscle, so muscle mm. and movement in the body in the world that kind of continues this uh, conversation with why we swim. And Docker was one of the people I talked to for the book. And we talked about this little like uh, teaser of the new book that'll be coming out in the next year or so um, about, we talked about jumping for joy, you know, mm -hmm. how, you know, even Darwin had so much to say about um, why we living creatures, you know, animals um and he pointed out like dogs frisk you know dogs jumping and bounding and horses frisking and kids jumping and that that we have um uh like jumping is one of those ways of accessing that joy that mm. like leaving that fl the feeling of floating and then being um awed by you know able being able to escape um gravity you know escape uh being pinned you know by the known laws of the world to the earth and you know as fleeting as it is it is something that um that causes us to feel happiness and feel like elation and all of these these words that are i mean again like the words that that we choose that, that we choose to describe you know levitating yes. levity like i just love how all of those things tie together um, because we we are seeking something that is actually quite hard to talk about. Um, but even something as as simple as jumping um, that little kids do from the very moment that they figure out how to use the legs, like it's um, it's something that we as adults, like it's you can return to that state. You think about it in sports. You think about it in jumping rope. You think about it as jumping off a diving board. Things that we don't really do. Um, but that create, creates that space for play that is so actually integral to life. Right. That's one of the great appeals of being in water is for a second you feel that gravity is finally loosening around you, right? And yeah. with that yes. comes, I think, a, a certain joy or a relief or, or yes. having a little bit of distance from kind of day-to-day -day life, right? Right. Yeah, and if you think about it, our bodies are... Um, constantly bearing the burden of gravity. I mean, it right. is just like a sort of default state, but once it's gone, like, like exactly like you pointed out, like if it's a momentary lifting of that or a relief, a, a sort, you know, you think about the moment that you plunge into the water and float back up to the surface, like how it's really this like, like this sigh. Um, and that help that changes how you look at the world. It really does change your perspective. And I think what that's what's, 
for me, I think the takeaway from all of these things that we're talking about and in, in, in our pursuit of these experiences is that it helps us to look at the world differently in that way of like staying flexible, staying curious, staying full of awe um, is something that makes life better. Yeah. To get back into the book and some of the examples you write about, I mean, you you kind of go on your own journalistic pursuit of different cultures, whether historically mm-hmm. or in the present, that are that are experiencing the water, are swimming in in really wonderful or unusual ways. I'd love for you just to mm-hmm. pick one or two of them that that you found particularly fascinating, and then maybe speak to the the kind of the magic of being in water. Oh wow! I mean, it's 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 so hard to pick about of among course, my favorite children. <laughs> <laughs> um, but of course, I, you know, one of the most special stories and people in the book um, is Goodlooker Fridthorson. And, you know, he's the Icelandic fisherman hmm. whose story opens while we swim. And, um, you know, the, the, the story that drew me to him, of course, is this experience he had when he was in his early 20s. He was on a fishing vessel that capsized off the coast of Iceland, and um, he was the lone survivor. He swam for six hours, six kilometers in freezing water, um, and made it, you know, follow the light from the lighthouse of his home island, uh, the island of Heime. It actually means home island, but it's Mm. like a, a, a small island that's off the main island of Iceland. And, um, you know, he made it to safety and, 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 you know, came out of the water. And um, when they, you know, brought him to the hospital and were able to do some tests, I mean, they, he, six hours in, you know, 41 degree water. I Mm. mean, he did not show any signs of hypothermia. He just, um, you know, he's like, it was, it was an event that like, boomeranged around the world in terms of news um, that this guy was able to survive. And he had no, you know, just was just a little dehydrated. And it turns out, of course, he consented to some medical studies. And, um, you know, they found that he had a biological quirk that his his body fat um, was like two to three times normal human thickness and more dense. And so he was huh. able to stay... Um, uh, his, his core temperature, body temperature was able to stay stable and he kept swimming. And so he was an excellent swimmer and, uh, and, and many, you know, I, it's a, it, to me, the story is like a, as a meeting of, um, you know, a, a kind of cultural evolution, cultural and, uh, you know, biological co-evolution where, you know, this, this country, um, this, you know, island nation, this nation that's an archipelago of, of islands, you know, fisher, fisher, men have like fishing has been such a a um an important part of the culture of iceland for you know for its whole history and seafaring people and the mythology of selkies you know i mean it it all kind of comes of a piece and people have drowned you know always along the coast and so people in iceland really pride themselves on their pools there there's like a public pool like a facility you know in pretty much every town that has a name you know even like no matter how tiny and they have geothermally heated pools that the people kind of you know they someone told me i love this line so much um you know, for Icelanders, the pool is our pub, you know, like when <laughs> in the depths of winter, like now when it's just cold and it gets dark so early that, you know, the public pool, um, you know, being heated and outside, like um, it's just used all day long. Like people will go for their morning swim and then they go to work and then the kids will come from public school for their gym class. And then, you know, afternoons and, and all the people come off from work and, you know, the grandfathers and the grandmothers come in and, um, you know, these hot pools are a social setting, but also, of course, it's so important to learn how to swim, like to be in this place. And so it's for the story of Goodluger Fridthorsen is like um, this combination of both a culture that values survival of water, um, you know, the skills that that one requires to live in this environment, but also the community that gathers around those watery places. Mm. Yeah, it speaks so beautifully to the place, just as you said, and the history and the culture. And 
I, I also think about maybe going back to the 19th century, I, the popularity of, of bathhouses and maybe mm-hmm. the beginning mm-hmm. of public pools. And right. um, I mean, these things probably didn't always exist and that there was I, for sure probably movements throughout culture that, that said, hey, this is a activity that we, we prize or we think is good or maybe it's only accessible to certain classes. But I mean, sure, yeah. there's stuff right. in there that you probably found along the way. Oh, so much. And I I think, of course, in the history of America, you know, um, with pools and public pools and also public beaches, um, and then over time being privatized and like to keep out people um, because of Mm -hmm. race, um, because of background, because of class, because of sex, like just, um, it was a we like the history of public pools in America is a history of of segregation mm. and racism um and it is really um in incredible to me the legacy that leaves on populations um in this country now who don't have continue not to have access and also continue to have um you know, prejudice against, uh, you know, around swimming and also the abilities of like, are you, you know, you know, black people can't swim and, or like, you know, that you shouldn't be able to, um, you know, you don't do that or that you don't have access to it. And, and when you kind of like dig really deep into it, I mean, it is about, um, having like a whole group of people shut out of, um, the pleasures and joy and wonder and the education of, of swimming. And, and, and that, that is not inherent to the group of people. It's that, that we as a country, um, imposed those restrictions and continue to, to this day, you know, whether they are, um, sort of institutionalized in ways that are, you know, not, not that people would be aware that they're, you know, that the history has kept this, you know, from people or that um, they're just like pools are not located in certain places anymore. There's no funding for it. Um, and I think that one of the things that I learned that was like a, a tough thing to face, but also really helped me to understand worldwide why that happens, why certain people, some people swim and some people don't. I mean, it really comes down to money and access and education mm. and um, and privilege. You know, like the pool is a place of privilege. The, you know, knowing how to swim is a privilege. Um, and for me, because I was lucky enough to grow up not too far from a public pool that we had access to, um, that was. Uh, you know, affordable for us. It was inclusive. My swim team was amazing. And it, and it was like all different um, groups from all over Long Island joined this team. And, you know, it was a place in which I first really felt at home in my body. And I, and I, because how I feel so strongly about that personally and how it changed my life, I just think that we need to do so much more to, um, you know, to work towards equity in swimming and swimming education in this country. Yeah. And I mean, there's so many threads we could follow if we had more time. I mean, if you look at coastal California, some of the biggest issues up and down the coast are just access to the beach. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what people are fighting over. And it has become the case that wealth allows one to be near the water more and more so. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, again, a whole other topic there, but it's like, um, you know, and to, to jump back in to your personal experiences, you know, we only have about mm-hmm. five minutes left here, is just talk to me now about, you know, what what you get out of still going to the ocean, being in, <laughs> in, in, I mean, you're particularly in a very cold, wild place, which is, you know, in the Bay Area. And Oh, yes. Um, I... <laughs> I get, what do I get out of it? I mean, I get so much. And, and one of my favorite, uh, you know, I've talked about this in many places before but really my best my favorite time to be in the water is at first light right so first thing in the morning and because I like the feeling of um I think it cleanses away the you know the detritus of life in a way that to me then when I come back to 
my house. I come back to my desk. I come back to work. I come back to my family. I, I am then replenished. I have my resources topped off so that I can then be the best version of myself. You know, that really is not an exaggeration. And um, I think that for many people, you know, you find, you find, people find different ways of doing that for themselves. But I think, um, you know, water buoys us all if we know how to handle ourselves in it. And so that kind of goes back to um, if you are allowed the privilege of learning how to conduct yourself in water in a safe way that will be with you for your lifetime. It is something that you can take with you forever. Um, it is a relief. It is like a built-in, you know, I, I, I think about, you know, whenever I go traveling or even when I'm just here at, at home that, you know, the fact that I could just jump into a body of water and feel free, like in a second, like that is just such a gift. And, and that's something that I want everyone to have. Mm. Do we have any sense of why, like physiologically, it feels so good? Because, you know, I, I used to compete in a lot of triathlon and the, the, I knew mm. that if I ever needed like a mood regulator, I was just in a bad <laughs> mood, I got to get in the water. That like run would help, bike would help, but the something about the pool, I'd come out of it feeling as if I emerged from like a meditation for some reason. It was yeah. a very, well, very clear-minded place. And I, I, I don't know if you, <laughs> you've looked into it or can explain why, but I, I think it's a pretty interesting place to be coming out of the out of the water. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you think about this, it's that's multifaceted, right? So if you think about swimming, what is it other than moving meditation, you really are breathing. Breathing is built into the thing. The nature of yeah, the thing is that right. you take a deep breath, you hold it, and then you breathe out slowly. And, and it is a measure, you know, you, ha you have to breathe in a particular way to be efficient in the water. And so that's like, do that for an hour. And you're really like doing meditative breathing for an hour. Um, and also, of course, like the exercise and all of the, the, the good feeling hormones that are like coursing through your system. But also, um, you know, we talked about earlier, it's the it's the feeling of floating, but also the pressure of the water on your body, it like improves circulation. And also it's like, a. I mean, I remember when I was so pregnant with my two kids um and 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 that it is like a massage on your body and if you think about it like the pressure is just moving it is improving your circulatory um your cardiovascular system everything and um also when you put your face in the water you do have this you know this mammalian dive reflex which is like it it changes you you know there are things that happen um, and all taken together, it's no wonder that you feel like you are transformed. It's been so wonderful to be joined by Bonnie Tsui, author of Why We Swim. Thanks so much for just sharing your research and your personal stories. It's, it's such a great topic. Thanks for the time. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, Jonathan. Thank you. Our producer is Andrea Brody, and we would love to hear from you and hear all about your experiences in and out of water. Leave a note on our Facebook page. You can also connect with me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion. Have a wonderful day, and thanks for joining us on Life Examined. We'll see you soon. Take care.